1 Corinthians chapter 10, we continue in our series through Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. The text for the sermon will be verses 24 to 11, verse 1, uh, but I'll begin in verse 14 just for the context. 1 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 14. Please give your full attention to God's word. But before we hear from God's uh, word, let's go to him in prayer one more time and ask for his blessing upon uh, the hearing and the preaching of that word. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, our Heavenly Father, we come again before you. Uh, What a privilege we have in being in your presence again this Lord's Day, your day. And we pray, Father, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and open hearts to receive from you now. We ask, Father, rest our attentions, remove all those distractions that swirl around in our minds, all of the day-to-day distractions throughout our week. Lord, grip us, help us to hear and to receive your word. Help us to bend our lives and our wills towards you. We do pray, Lord, that the instrument of your word this morning and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. We ask this all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting at verse 14. Please now give attention to God's word. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread... We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to a dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience. If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I gave thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So for the reading of God's word, 
May he indeed add his blessing to it. Last time we were together, uh, we began to look at this chapter. We looked at the first half of this chapter. And we mentioned back then, if you remember, that beautiful synopsis, that summary of the purpose of life uh, that many of us have memorized, right? The Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, chapter one, I'm sorry, uh, question and answer one. What is the chief end of man? Chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And if you've been thoughtful, uh, been exposed uh, to this kind of a memory tool, uh, and you want to always ground your thinking and dig into the scriptures to make those points, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 is the proof text for that, that question and answer. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. And we'll look at that verse in a moment uh, in its context, but let's start by giving a big picture Right up front, the answer, if you will, before the details. We know from Scripture that all that was needed, all that we needed, has been done in Jesus Christ. And therefore, we are free to give ourselves to others. Right? We are free from the working to gain, from the meriting our way to the Father. Jesus did that perfectly. Praise God. We are united to Him. And being free... Because all our needs have been met in Christ, we can meet the needs of our neighbor. We can meet the needs of others. We are free to do so. And in doing this, whatever we do, whether in eating or in drinking, we do it all for his glory. All for God's glory. And so we come to this last section in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. And Paul here wraps up his discussion about eating food that had been offered to idols. There had been a pretty long section, right? If you recall, it began back in chapter 8. And so for three chapters, Paul goes on, and it's all dedicated to this specific topic, and that is whether Christians should refrain from eating food that had been dedicated to idols or whether they are free to eat it. You'll remember, if you think back in the previous chapters, that the church was divided, right? It was divided into two groups. One group argued that Christians are free to eat food that had been dedicated to idols, right? The so-called stronger group. And the other group, the weaker brothers and sisters in Corinth, argued that they were not free because to eat idol meat would be an act of idolatry itself, was their argument. And the strong argued, the strong said, idols have no real existence. They're not real in reality. And so food is simply food. Christians are free to eat it. And so the Corinthian church there was divided on this issue. And to settle this division, what did they do? They sent a letter to the Apostle Paul and they asked him to decide for them, asked him for help. The stronger insisted on their rights and their freedom in Christ to eat this food. But Paul tells them that they must sacrifice their rights and their liberties for the sake of the weaker brother, their weaker brothers and sisters in the Lord. And remember that phrase that uh, Paul adds on, the weaker brother and sister for whom Christ died. And they must never exercise their freedom in a way that would cause the brother or sister to fall into sin. Paul tells them that even if, they, if it were lawful for them to eat this idol food, this food that had been offered to idols, it would not be beneficial for them to do so, nor beneficial for the church because it doesn't edify the brothers and sisters in the Lord. Paul had made this point earlier to be sure, and he does so again here in verse 23. 
verse 23, where he says, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Right in that phrase, rightly, in your ESV uh, Bibles, if you're reading from the ESV, is in quotation marks. All things are lawful. It's in quotation marks because Paul is citing a slogan. Right? This is about the fourth time he's done this in this discourse. He slided, cited slogans that people were using. This was something that the strong group, the strong brothers, were using uh, as they asserted their rights, including their right to eat this, food, this meat that had been offered up to idols. And Paul cites this slogan twice, you see there in that verse. And then he gives his own response to this slogan. He says, you, you say that all things are lawful, but I say not all things are helpful. You say all things are lawful, but I say not all things build up. Right? He's responding to this assertion. You see the point that Paul is making there. Whether or not something is lawful is not the only standard. It's not the only determiner in regards to behavior. Whether it's lawful or not, there are other things that come into play. Indeed, more important things, Paul will say. And he says, even if something is lawful, it should not be done if it does not promote the well-being of others. And certainly it should not be done if it damages the well-being of others. If I'm doing something that does not edify or build up the saints, but it might in fact have that opposite effect of damaging them, then I should not be doing it. This is what Paul is telling them. Even if it's lawful to do so, not all things build up, not all things are beneficial or helpful. And so our rights and our liberties are important, but they are not of ultimate importance. They are not the most important thing to consider. And the freedoms that we have in Christ must be Balanced. They must be balanced by our responsibilities to build up our brothers and sisters in Christ and for the honor and indeed the glory of God. Uh, sometimes we have to forfeit our rights for the sake of other believers or for the sake of the gospel. And of course, if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, he does this throughout his ministry. He does it throughout his ministry, uh, even as he discussed in chapter 9 um, a, number of, uh, uh, a number of sermons ago, we talked about this. He not only sacrificed his rights as his general rights as a Christian believer, but his special rights as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He forgoes those for the sake of others. He did so for the sake of the gospel. If you turn back to chapter, uh, the end of chapter 8, we see this. He says in verse 13, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Right? And then he goes forward and towards the end, or throughout chapter 9, towards the end there. Uh, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I, might win, win, uh, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. And he goes on, and then in verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. So this is Paul's standard. This is his, uh, his standard way of operation, his standard operating procedure, if you will. And some have, uh, have, uh, have postulated what, what Paul is doing here is he's making a, a contextual, contextualization. He's contextualizing the church. Um, they say that this is setting up uh, niche, niche churches, right, with specific demographics or specific kinds of styles or even specific uh, racial groups. That is not what Paul is doing here. 
Right? Paul is not talking about contextualization. Right? I have a friend who laments um, <laughs> wildly about the reality of something called the cowboy church. Have you heard of this? Uh, it's, it's fashion and geared towards that kind of lifestyle and that kind of uh, living, I guess. Or, or a biker church, right? There are many different things that could be cited. But Paul didn't mean this kind of thing. He didn't mean churches that are just made up of Jewish Christians or Gentile believers or churches made up of only weaker Christians. That kind of thing violates an underlying principle in Scripture that tells us what the assembly of God's people is to be. It is to be all of his people, right? It is, uh, the, the, the church is the called out ones, those called out from the world, from every tribe and tongue and nation, under heaven, and we are to separate and to segregate on the Lord's day for worship. All of God's people and all kinds of God's people are to come together in union as the body of Christ, united to Jesus and united in worship of our triune God. What Paul is talking about here is voluntary, voluntarily giving up his rights, giving up rights and liberties for the sake of winning others to Jesus Christ for the sake of the gospel, for the sake even of weaker brethren in the church. This is what he's asking the Christians at Corinth to do, to follow his example as he followed Christ's example. And then in verse 24, Paul states the general principle that should serve as a rule for all of us, a rule for life. And lo and behold, it's not something new. Indeed, it is a connection back to what he has commanded us all along. Verse 24 Uh, He says this, Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. The good of his neighbor. Not his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And that's a moral principle as a rule of life for you and I, brothers and sisters, as as Christian, as Christian believers. Paul demonstrates this rule in his own ministry, as we've seen time and again. And he points to the Corinthians to follow him as he was following the example of Christ. And again, this isn't something that comes as some kind of abstract, disconnected moral code, but it's derived from a person, from the person and work of Jesus Christ himself. And we know this, this becomes very clear and evident when he states this thing explicitly in chapter 11, verse 1, uh, which clearly belongs to this section. It's one of those unfortunate chapter divisions that came along far, far uh, after the time of the writing of scriptures. The chapter divisions, of course, aren't inspired, but chapter 11, verse 1 belongs to this section. And there, Paul says explicitly, follow me, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. It's the work and example of Christ from which this commandment comes, from which this rule comes. It's the work of Jesus, the gospel that determines behavior. For example, we see this in other places in Scripture. For one example, uh, Romans chapter 15, verse one, he begins by saying this, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. And then verse 3, for Christ did not please himself. Right, there's a principle, there's an example for us to follow, to emulate. Our lives pattern Christ's life, even in this. And so what Christ did for others should determine our behavior towards others. Right? That's the rule that he gives. It's not an abstract principle. It's not a, uh, something that comes from an abstract book of virtues. 
It comes from the person of Jesus Christ, our King and our Savior. So that's the key, if you will. You want a key to the Christian life? That's it, right? We, uh, by which we are to live uh, as Christ did, we are to do as well in regards to giving up our own rights for others. And Paul states it in the form of a moral principle for all areas of life, including the area of whether to eat idle food or not. Paul says, follow the rule which is derived from the very gospel itself. Christ did all these things for the sake of others. He did all things, including the sacrifice of his own life, for the sake of others, for the benefit of others, for the help of others. Christ did all things for our salvation. So how can we, who are united to Jesus, do anything that could hinder others or the work of the gospel? How could we seek our own rights or pursue our own good or our own desires if they do not promote the good and the well-being and the salvation of other people? If they hinder the work of the gospel? We cannot. Christians cannot live in this way. Rather, this is how they must live. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Right There it is in verse 24. And after Paul saying this, he states these general principles he moves on to a more specific um, situations that these Corinthian believers would have found themselves in, selves in in regards to eating food that had been sacrificed to idols or dedicated to idols in pagan uh, worship. And he tells them what they should do in those specific circumstances. And Paul here gives two basic ways that believers at that time uh, might have can't come in contact with this food in question, right? How they would have come in contact with that. In one way was simply they might come upon it in the market, in the meat market, when they're shopping. Right? You've got to buy food. You need sustenance for your body. They would go shopping and there would be this meat with this questionable background. And then the other way was if they were invited to dinner by their unbelieving, their pagan uh, neighbors. Right? But first the market, the meat market. Right? This, this was something that they, they would have faced all the time. Some of the meat that had been there was offered to an idol before it got to the market. Right? Most of this meat had been butchered by a pagan priest in relation to this religious ceremony. And what should you do in this situation? This was the question. Should you buy it or not? Paul says in verse 25, Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Right? So in other words, he said, when you're shopping, don't ask the seller whether it was offered, dedicated to an idol or, idol or not. Don't ask the question. Just buy the food. It's food. And this is in contrast to the practice of the Jews at the time. And for decades, they had kept this practice where in many of the cities, Jews had their own market where they sold all kosher food. Um, but in some cities, this wasn't the case. They shared marketplace uh, with the Gentiles. And that was a problem that the Jews faced on a daily basis. And when they shopped for food, they would always ask the seller if it had been dedicated to an idol or not. And if it was, they wouldn't buy it. Paul tells the, the Christians at Corinth, he says, don't do that. Don't ask. And the fact that he tells them this, not to ask, shows that he, in a sense, agrees with the strong. He agrees with them that food dedicated dedicated to idols, is nothing but food. The nature of the food doesn't change because it had been offered in sacrifice to an idol. 
by not asking the Christians, they might end up eating meat, idol food. Food had been offered in this way. Because if you don't ask, you might get some, and you might cook it up, and you might eat it. Paul knows this, and he doesn't have an issue with this food. If this is the case, what's the point of not asking? Why shouldn't they ask if food is only food? Well, if they ask and they find out that it is food that had been sacrificed, dedicated to an idol, they should not buy it, he says. Because if they do, the seller and perhaps other collateral listeners or other people who might be standing around would know that the Christian is buying it and, it could, and possibly condoning it. Right? So the principle of the thing is not to, give, uh, not to condone the practice, not to give the appearance of condoning the practice, Others might interpret their buying as a participation in or support of that idolatry. And that is what Paul is desirous, tells them that they must avoid. If they don't ask, they avoid anyone making the association with the religious intent of the buyer, you see. So that's why they aren't to ask. Then in verse 26, Paul states the reason why they are free to buy meat without asking Um, about its background verse 26 right the reason of course is that all meat everything on earth belongs to the lord and so paul there in verse 26 he quotes from psalm 24 for the earth is the lord's and the fullness thereof the earth is the lord's and the fullness thereof he's citing psalm 24 to make the point that food dedicated to an idol still belongs to the lord it's still from god God is one. There is one true and living God. The earth is the Lord's and all the things therein, all of the things, all food belongs to God, not to an idol. It belongs to the Lord. God is the creator of all things. And all food is good. And Christians are free to eat it because it belongs to God. God provided it for them. He provides food for us and we should receive it with thanksgiving. This is the first way that Christians might interact with, come in contact with, might eat this food that had been offered to idols by simply going to the grocery store and buying meat. They face the possibility of getting some that have been dedicated to an idol. What does Paul tell them to do? Don't ask about it. And you avoid the possible association with idolatry. That's the first way in the market. The second way is uh, that a Christian could come in in contact in this pagan city uh, with this kind of meat They might be faced with this if they're invited by their unbelieving neighbors to share a meal. Verse 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. One thing interesting about this verse that we find, kind of, and we see this kind of parenthetically, uh, it's, it's curious because it tells us that Christians were indeed free to interact, to intermingle, to share a meal with their pagan neighbors. Right? That's contrary to some traditions, some, uh, some groups within the history of the Christian uh, church. Right? They were free to eat meals with their pagan neighbors. Right? There are some, some believers in, in history who tried to separate themselves entirely from unbelievers tried to section themselves off like the isolationist monks of old, right? Like them, some have thought that they could isolate themselves from all of the sin out in the world. And they advocate moving off and developing uh, your own communities. The problem is, 
What do you bring with you to those communities? You bring your own sin, right? And so they're not free of sin because sin is not just out there. Sin is in here. And it makes it hard in doing this kind of thing to spread the gospel when you live like that, right? It makes it very hard. Uh, Not that it's without its appeal, right? There's some appealing things to that, but it's just not biblical. It's not how Christians lived in the first century, and it's not how God intended for us to live. Christians there in the city, in this, uh, this pagan city where they were a tiny minority, they had neighbors who worshipped idols. And if they were invited for a meal, they were free to go and to share a meal with their idol-worshipping neighbors. So if an unbeliever invited you and you went, this is the second issue here. You were to eat whatever is set before you, Paul says, without raising a question on the ground of conscience. And that's, actually, it's the same advice that he gave in regard to the meat market. Right? Don't ask questions. Just eat it. Verse 28, but if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. Right? I do not mean your conscience, but his Right? The unbeliever, you're at the unbeliever's house, you eat without question, it's the same as the marketplace rule. Don't ask. But if you are told, for the sake of conscience, for his conscience, don't eat it. Right? And you see there in that verse, it says, if someone says to you, right, who is the someone that he's talking about? Who is that? It's the host? Perhaps it's the host who he's speaking of. It could be another guest could be another pagan guest or another Christian, another believing guest. Perhaps it's speaking of the weaker brother that might be there. They certainly would have their sensibilities offended in seeing idle meat being eaten, especially by another believer. Paul is saying that by eating it, you would be encouraging them to participate in idolatry in their own mind for the sake of their conscience, right? And so eating it would condone the practice in their mind. So don't eat it. If they tell you that it is idle food. And that seems to be the point there. And then verse 30. He says, if I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of the, that for which I gave thanks? Right? He's talking about partaking of food with thankfulness. Right? Before eating, believers what? They would give thanks to the Lord for his provision for that food. Why? Because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Right? Psalm 24, including the food in the earth, right? which God gives for our bodily nourishment. And if I give thanks, he says, why am I to be judged for that? Why should I be denounced for eating something that God gave me? And then in verse 31 comes, right? There's the context, and then verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do all to the glory of God. And that's a good verse. Many of you, I'm sure, have memorized this verse. Many of you have committed this verse to memory. If not for the sake of Shorter Catechism Question 1, but for the sake that this is what stands underneath that question, right? Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. But it's important to know the context uh, that the text stands in. I've told you in the past, many of you, about a teacher of mine who used to say, never read a Bible verse. He'd say, never read a Bible verse. And that sounds a little provocative, but he doesn't mean don't read the Bible, of course. It means don't read only one Bible verse. 
Why? Because you, then you won't be in danger of taking things out of context. Right? Read the context. Know the context. And here we have the context. Right? Why does Paul mention eating and drinking here? It's not merely that we are to do all things, even really mundane things, humdum, humdrum things, uh, day in and day out things like eating and drinking to the glory of God. To be sure, we are to do that. But Paul's been talking about eating and drinking all this time. For three chapters, whatever we do, he says, and all that we do is to serve God's glory. It's to serve God's honor. The context is important. And so whether you eat this food or whatever else you do, going to a butcher, eating at a neighbor's home, whatever you find yourself doing, wherever you find yourself uh, in, your actions are to be determined by what serves God's glory. By what brings God honor. That's the point of this. Right? That's the point of his argument from chapter 8 all the way until finally given here in verse 31 of chapter 10. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And anything that does not serve God's glory, and anything that does not serve God's honor, anything or action that brings dishonor to God, that brings dishonor to his church, that brings dishonor to Christ, to the Lord Jesus, we cannot and we must not do. We must not be engaged in. That is a rule for life, brothers and sisters. We don't argue about our rights and our liberties and our freedom. Make this be your rule. Whatever serves his glory, you are free to do. Whatever does not serve his glory, we must never do. That's the rule. And it's ultimately, it's a goal of life. It is indeed the chief end of man. It is man's primary purpose for all of our decisions and all of our actings. God's glory, his honor. The Christian must not be overwhelmed and concerned with his own rights, but with God's glory, God's honor. And so eating and drinking, everything we do in life must serve this purpose, the honor, the glory of Jesus Christ. And so that summarizes really Paul's main point in this text. Paul gives this principle that should guide them in the marketplace, in the marketplace, and when eating a meal with their pagan neighbors, and everywhere. But it's a principle, right? We see it's very broad. It's very general. It's both specific and broad. It should guide all of our actions. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. In verse 32, Paul says this. He goes on in, in, in applying this principle and not seeking your own good in the glory of God of being the determiner. And he says, give no offense to Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Um, and this is a, an easy verse to misunderstand and it's really somewhat unfortunate and less, less, uh, less than clear um, in the English because Paul is not saying, don't do something that might offend these people. It's not what Paul's saying. Paul's not saying, don't do something that might offend the Jews. Or the Greeks. Right? How do I know that that's true? It doesn't take reading very long in the New Testament to see that if anybody did offensive things to the Jews and to the Greeks, it was the Apostle Paul. Right? That's not what he's saying. Paul constantly offended them by preaching the gospel. So he doesn't mean don't do something that might offend them. What Paul means here, what this verse, verse 32 means is, don't do something that might cause them to commit an offense or to lead them into sin. That's what Paul is saying there. 
He says, don't do anything to cause others to commit sin. Don't let your actions be the cause of others to stumble. In verse 33, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Right? Paul, in these verses, he's not being a people pleaser. Clearly he was not. In a very real way, he could care less. Right? He says as much. I care very little if I'm judged by you or anyone. God is my judge, he says. Remember? He didn't seek to please others. He was constantly persecuted by his preaching, by the things that he taught and said. These things displeased many. But he tried to please others in this sense. right? Not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. So he made himself a servant to all people in that way. That's what he means. Paul points to himself in whatever he did, whether he ate or drank or whatever. To the Jews, he became a Jew. To the Gentiles, he became a Gentile. In all of it, to the weak, he became weak. What he just said, we read in in chapter 9. In all of it, he tried to please everyone in this sense. Not seeking his own advantage, but the advantage of others. Because that was his call and his commission by his Savior. He was an apostle, a sent one by the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he adds the key in verse 1 of chapter 11 that is the end of this section. right? Chapter 11, verse 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Right? That's the key. That's the, the clincher, if you were. Follow my example that I stated for you, that I've modeled for you, in that I followed Christ Jesus. And Paul is not pointing to himself as the ultimate example to be imitated. He says, imitate me only in that I imitate Christ. And notice in the same breath that he says, follow me. He points away from himself, points to Jesus. This tells us everything that he's been arguing. Right? Do, Do nothing for your own good, but the good of others. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. He's not citing abstract, again, moral disconnected principles or some code of conduct. He's deriving these very things that he's saying and all that he's saying from the person and the life and the work of Jesus Christ the Lord of glory. These are things that come from the gospel. What Christ did for us determines for us what we are to do for others, right? In modeling in that way, how we treat others. This is conformity to the gospel. The gospel is not only what Christ did for us, but it's also about us being united to Christ and being conformed to the image of Christ and following in that example. That's what Paul's saying here. Let's look to Christ, what Christ did. All that he went through, the extent that he went through for our redemption as our substitute on our behalf. And exactly what did he do for us? Right? What did he do for you? Well, he did not insist on his own rights. But he gave up all of his rights. He emptied himself, Scripture says, for the sake of others, for your benefit, for your salvation. And that's how we must live brothers and sisters, self-sacrificially, dying to self for others. We have everything in Christ. All that is His is ours. So we're free to do so. Christ has done this for us, and this is how we are to relate to others in our lives, in our behavior, in our actions, in the decisions that we make, in our thinking. 
And of course, the chair passage for this in the New Testament, some of you have already gone there in your minds, um, where this is summarized, of course, is Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, this most glorious passage that speaks of this very thing. Paul is telling them of the humility of Christ. He's telling them the mindset of Christ. He's encouraging them to be like Jesus in all that they do. And he says this. This is Philippians chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see the point there. This is what Paul is saying. It's the same thing. Paul doesn't have a multivaried message. He said even though he was in the form of God and equal to the Father, he didn't grasp hold of his rights in being in the form of God and equal to God. But what did he do? He emptied himself of that. Right? Becoming, taking on the form of a man, he humbled himself. He humbled himself the point of death, death on a cross for his people, for you, brothers and sisters. Let that same mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, is what Paul says in Philippians, and he's saying it again in 1 Corinthians, our text this morning. This is what he did, and it should determine how we act towards others. This is not a ho-hum thing that we have yawning indifference towards. This is glorious. This is what the gospel is. It's the declaration and the command of Scripture for you as you belong to Him. This is the example of Christ that Paul followed, what he is calling on the Corinthians to do, to follow, and what he's calling on us to do and to follow. Brothers and sisters, we often grasp these these high and glorious truths of Scriptures, and they can seem as high and glorious as they are far and distant and unattainable not only in our comprehension, but certainly in our apprehension. God's call on our lives, dear Christian, can seem so hard to realize. And it is hard. It's too hard for us to humanly deal with. It is too difficult for us. But praise God, dear Christian. Praise God that you have a Savior if you have Jesus, if you're united to Him, and He is yours, and you are His, you have a Savior who did all that needed to be done to free you from the bondage of your sin, from the guilt of your sin, and He freed you to begin to serve Him in love and in peace. On your own, you cannot serve sacrificially your neighbor. You cannot love your neighbor as yourself or your brothers and sisters in Christ. 
but in Christ, and only in Christ, you are freed to do that very thing which he commands you to do. You are freed from striving and meriting and earning. And that's pathetic at the end of the day, is it not? In your own, in your own self, we have a Savior, brothers and sisters, who was faithful to the point of death on a cross. He is the power provider for you who love him, who've trusted in him for life. In my weakness, his great power shines through, right? That's the glorious declaration that Paul tells us as well. Christ's work shows the magnitude of our sin and the needed remedy for our sin. And it shows us the seriousness of and the severity of what we should be taking more seriously. And his work shows us that we can have faith and trust and truly believe the declarations of who we are in Christ from his word. Dead to sin. Raised to walk in newness of life. Washed, sanctified, glorified. And all those glorious things that we've been talking about. He was faithful for us. And by his work, we are free to begin to live in faith for him. Free from sin. Free to follow his desire for us. That's remarkable. That's awesome. Who are you, Christian? Who are you? See who you are. United. Save the new creation, he says. Be who you are. As you move back from the heavenly Mount Zion of worship, of corporate worship, back into your exile lives, may you go renewed in your understanding and your commitment to the same Jesus who made the ultimate commitment for you, his people. Indeed, who accomplished your redemption and freed you from your own abysmal striving and list-keeping and legalism or whatever else once you trusted in. Go with the love of Jesus, dear Christian, in the confidence of belonging to Jesus. He is your King and your Lord and your Redeemer. He's all that you need. Let us rejoice and praise always His precious name. Amen.